I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, and welcome to another episode of Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. With me, as always, is Dr. Maria Tflaga, political scientist with the School of Politics and International Relations. Welcome, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. Good to have you, as always. And with us today is Professor Andrea Carson. Uh, Andrea is a professor in political communications at La Trobe University. She's written a number of very interesting pieces through the voice period and uh, uh, some commentary on, on, I suppose, the way the, the public debate occurred, the, the, the way media handled, and when I say media, I mean that in the sense of, you know, sort of legacy media or mainstream media, as it's sometimes called, but also social media, done some work there. And so we thought it'd be a good time to talk about that. We've just had this voice campaign. It went on for a long time. The, the formal campaign might have only been five or six weeks, but the whole process went on for a long time. And of course, during that period, support went from a soft 60 or 65% support for the proposition to around 60%, perhaps even a touch more rejecting it. Uh, so Andrea, welcome back to Democracy Sausage, I should say at first. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Maria. Good to be here. Always good to talk to you. Now, um, I noticed that as you've done some work, I was reading in, in a piece you had in the conversation that you've done some work on uh, the way the voice referendum and the outcome was reported internationally, or at least you've had a look at some of the um, uh, the, the articles that have been written or mentions in relation to it. Uh, and you've quoted uh, the BBC, for example, as saying it was a fraught and often acrid campaign, and the Washington Post describing the result as a crushing blow. And you've also uh, looked at, through a, uh, a media monitoring, global media monitoring company called Meltwater, the number of media mentions of the voice and issues around it through the campaign. And that showed, among other things, that there was a significant uptick in mentions in the last week of the campaign. I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised about that, but that includes internationally as well. Uh, those results surprise you? I think it was about a 30% increase in mentions. Not particularly. Uh, as you mentioned before, the formal part of the campaign was about six weeks and using this meltwater data, and I must say I was working with a team of political scientists and one of our jobs that we gave ourselves was to really look at the contours of the campaign through social media and mainstream media and meltwater allowed us to do that, to give listeners a bit of an idea. Uh, it has 150,000 media companies that are represented on that platform as well as 12 social media sites. So we get a real feel for the population, I guess, of information that's coming in with the debate. And then on top of that, we're looking at the paid advertising, which we had visibility over thanks to Google and Facebook, uh, online advertising. And then the other thing we did was take together the public polling and pull those results together and track it as we went through. So we weren't surprised to see that the traffic was increasing as we got closer and closer to polling day. Uh, and it wasn't all that surprising to see that international attention really sort of switched on in that last week. Yeah, let's just stay with that international thing for a moment. There was quite a deal of interest. I know this personally because I did a number of international interviews with with uh, American Radio, with BBC, Al Jazeera, these sorts of organisations who were quite interested in this question because I think 
the world was looking at Australia and thinking, well, you're kind of a progressive liberal democracy, and uh, you know the fact that these issues haven't been sorted out with, with a settlement hasn't been reached with the First Peoples. That's pretty uncommon, and yet it looks like Australians aren't supporting it. It was, I think, you know, one of those moments. So that was the the sense I got from from media I spoke to, but also from from media I read. There was quite a lot of interest there. What what is of that thirty percent increase? How much of it was international? Do you do you have those sort of breakdowns? Uh, we do. I would say it would be a, a much smaller proportion. I can't tell you off the top of my head what the figure was, but we did look at international interest just prior to the vote, and then we looked at it immediately afterwards, and we did see that uptick. But part of this was also because there were some very high-profile people like the rapper MC Hammer that weighed into the voice debate at one point um, supporting the Yes campaign. And so that picked up some of the American interest. But as you said, there was always going to be in the Anglo um, countries, Canada, the UK, that have uh, similar sort of uh, Westminster systems to what we do and also a history of colonisation that we're watching to see what Australia did in this space. Yeah, that's actually really quite fascinating. And I suppose, can I ask a bit more about the sort of general contours that you did find? Were there sort of phases to the campaign, Andrea, or or was that, or or in many ways, was this just a sort of end game of, of a bigger process? Yeah, I think there were, one of the things was the slow start for the Yes campaign that no seemed to have experimented with its messaging perhaps at the start of the year and really landed on what its major message was going to be going through this campaign. And when we really turned our attention to it, which was the day that the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, announced the referendum date, which people will recall was the 30th of August, That's when the Yes campaign really started to take off, but they were doing that experimentation in messaging at that point with only six weeks to go. And if you take into account early voting, which truncates campaigns even more because we know Australians have a predilection for going to the polls early now that um, it's become more permissible, they really had four weeks to hone their message and to start to um, turn around what already was quite a steep downward trend away from the support that Mark spoke about this time last year, which was up around the 65%, whereas No had already solidified its message. And one of the ways that we saw this was the paid advertising space. So looking at the different actors on both sides of the yes and no. At one point in August, we saw that yes still had about 33 different messages going on, whereas no had six, but really it only had two because uh, the predominant messages related to two. And I'm sure listeners can recall what those two messages are. That was, if you don't know, say no, and this is going to be divisive for the country. Mm. It was much more difficult to be able to do something similar for the Yes campaign because it had so many different actors involved and it was still experimenting with where it was landing the message at those late stages, although the early stages of the formal campaign, but the late stages of the year leading up towards the um, final polling day. I mean, did the Yes campaign actually ever sort of settle on... Uh, a, a one or one or two messages, or or was it always? Did it remain a large number? Yeah, I think they did. Right towards the last week, we could see the message was really about if you listen, you get better outcomes, um, and about closing the gap. Um, and so there was a lot more around that listening, and that this isn't a big ask. This is about uh, having a. A, a represent well, not representative, but having an advisory committee. Um, so they were the messages that they landed with towards the end, but it took a while for them to get there. Neither of those messages um, go to the way in which it interacts with you, the voter, in the way that the No Campaign's messages did. Um, you know, the, the No Campaign was appealing to fear of the unknown, uh, to the possibility that you were being sold a pup or something that was more complicated. Uh, so in a sense, there was a there was a kind of a visceral link that the, that the uh, no campaign was establishing with voters who were perhaps on the fence, uh, perhaps um, and not knowing what, which way to go, not really understanding it, just being aware that there's a lot of disagreement around it. The yes case finally settles on, as you say, those those sorts of things like um, 
what was it the the listening you get better outcomes yeah. um this is a way to solve the closing the gap problem yeah and uh, it's not a big ask yeah. it's a committee yeah you can you can tell that it was compelling i, I forgot about it in in 10 seconds um but it it just didn't that, that's a fairly abstract thing like it, it it's it's still talking about um outcomes for other people and this was a vote of the whole australian electorate do you think andrea that was a problem like and if i could just bolt a, f- a further question onto that in that vein <laughs> is yes even a worthwhile slogan because that was really their key slogan yes I think the really important points that you raise there, Mark, um, the first is that we have to remember that yes had a much harder ask than what no did. You mentioned the fear uh, and the negativity that came from no and divisive, of course, is a negative word. When you're reinforcing the status quo, which is what a no vote does, and you have a lower bar in terms of the double majority and you're running a fear campaign, that's a much easier ask than an affirmative campaign, which is asking people to make change and to move away from the status quo yeah. and also to get four states on board instead of three, which by its nature means it has to be a broader campaign. Um, your point about is yes enough, I think you made that on Insiders and I remember nodding furiously when I heard that because it, there's an imaginative space there, isn't there? There's so much more that could have been done with that. But it speaks to a broader problem, and that is that this wasn't an apex campaign. It wasn't the sort of political campaigns that Australians are used to and that political actors are used to where you've got a central command, they decide what the messaging is, and then everyone has the discipline to follow suit. Here we had at least two major yes campaigns going on, the Uluru Statement of the Heart and the Yes 23. They've got different actors involved in each of those campaigns. People are putting out different messages. Then you had the corporates and others getting on board, paying their own advertising, putting out their own messages. And, and, and the government itself. Noisy, and go, Exactly. Yeah. So it became a very noisy space. And the noise crowded out what that central message was. And I think it's a little bit akin perhaps to how noisy the messaging was in 2019 with Bill Shorten um, as opposition leader when they had 100 positive policies. Yeah. Well, that that's great. But when you have 100, ask people to recall one of them and it becomes much more difficult. And I, I think that's the problem we saw here too. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that sort of set of arguments that you've just made. And and I guess what I would add is um, to, to what you were saying about the structural dimension of this question and, and what Mark was sort of saying is that, you know, this is always going to, this was always going to be a difficult proposition because 3% of the population is asking 97% of the population to basically do something for for them and for the, the certain sets of issues they have. And I mean, one of the things that reminded me of the 2019 campaign was that it never really adapted to the actual conditions on on the ground. You know, like I think the Yes campaign really wanted a repeat of the 1967 referendum where there really wasn't a no campaign, mm. it's just a sort of a bunch of cranks on the, on the side. Um, and that sort of was all predicated on it being bipartisan. Mm. And that kind of makes sense. Like it actually fits with... The, the abstract nature of the sets of, of questions and the fact that there was an obvious and entirely reasonable reluctance to really enter into negative framing around Indigenous peoples, mm. which is what a traditional problem-solution advertising or campaign frame would have to do, yeah. you know, but that... That is establish the problem and propose yeah, the solution. Yeah, yeah, which is sort of where they ended up landing, I presume because it was effective, um, but also... Uh, you know, is probably clear enough for people who um, are time poor or apathetic or even um, hostile on a sort of diffuse grievance sense to mm. to buy into it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting point actually. The the failure to to kind of hone that. I mean, as you say, three percent of the population or just a bit more was asking the other ninety seven percent to do something and. That's why I was sort of framing the question I was before, you know, was it enough to actually base it on that 3% or did it need to be articulated in 
in a way that was about Australia's national story. And that's, that's kind of what I tried to argue in a few columns early on, that that this change was a proposal that would improve the entire country, that it would actually unify. And that was the spirit in which it was put forward, there's no doubt. So the No campaign picked what they thought was the yes case, one of the yes cases better attributes, this idea of unifying Australia, and went straight at it by calling it divisive. By, by suggesting that it would split the nation in two, that it would create a special class of citizen, that it would introduce race into the into the uh, constitution for the first time, which of course was fallacious. But those arguments resonated. And simply saying yes, having a slogan that was yes, just had no narrative power at all. It had no, it had it implied no story. But I think it also um, speaks to a degree of complacency. We've yes. already talked about the flattened hierarchies within the campaign, but having that support last year, the two-thirds of Australians, it would seem, were supportive of the idea. And then as no started to really prosecute that and use fear and negativity to do so, then came the lack of um, bipartisan support, the Nationals flagging much earlier than the opposition leader Peter Dutton, which was in April. Once it lost the bipartisan support, another structural issue arose, and that is the difficulty or the non-existence of getting a referendum through without that yeah. bipartisan support. And I think the complacency the Yes campaign had was assuming that goodwill from last year was going to be enough to take them all the way through. And, of course, as a result, shows and the difficulty of the task, as Maria's pointed out, of getting an affirmative response for a segment of the population um, wasn't enough to do it, that it needed to be a much more proactive campaign, and I would argue earlier on. Yeah, I mean, that's that was a, a good point you were making in your first answer, I think, that uh, it was such a, the, the formal campaign uh, supposedly started six weeks out from, from polling day. A lot of people voted, as you say, even before that, a very great deal of people. I, I don't know what the final number was, but I think it was approximating half. Uh, yeah, it, it may have been slightly larger. Yeah, which is which is astonishing, right? So it it changes the, as Andrea says, it you know reduces the amount of time you've actually got to sway people before to convince them before they actually go in and cast their vote, after which point the campaign has no... No engagement with them at all. No useful engagement anyway. So so you've got that. But also just how long, Andrew, here it took for the yes case. I think the term you used before was really get going, but it never really got going in, in my view. And it certainly took a long time to be officially up and running. If I could take task with that slightly, okay. um, there was a moment, and that was the John Farnham ad, which was by the Uluru Statement of the Heart. And I thought when we were looking at the contours of this debate and looking at how much volume the campaigns were getting week by week, I thought with the release of the Farnham ad, which was a very well-crafted ad in my view, but I'm saying that because it was probably my era and, you know, I have a great degree of um, nostalgia about that song. But I thought this is going to be the moment where we're going to see a real uptick in that, uh, arrest that decline in the polls. And we saw enormous traffic that week that that ad was released, a lot of free media, but the problem was it wasn't backed up with the paid media space. And the reason I think that was was because it was released by one of the major campaigns, not the other one that had all the money. And what <laughs> we saw was that it did get some um, paid space in, the, you know, being targeted through online, but it wasn't until six or seven days later and it was often um, uh, the Yes 23 throwing a bone to the Uluru Statement of the Heart saying, and by the way, look at the Farnham ad, rather than a full-on campaign. And I think that also spoke to a contrast between that and Advance Australia, which was behind the Fair Australia campaign, thus seasoned political campaigners. They've been involved in lots of campaigns. Here we had some very well-meaning people that perhaps didn't have the same type of strategy and tactical experience in campaigning that was seen on the other side. And the Farnham ad to me was one of those moments where they got great free media. They had, um, it was a little polarising, I must say, but they did have a lot of people talking about it. But as you know, Mark, with the 24-hour news cycle, it dissipates really quickly and it needs to be, uh, the messaging needs to be re-injected and usually through the paid space. And there wasn't that follow-up. We'll take a quick break there and be back in a moment. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. We were talking just before the break about the John Farnham ad. Andrea, I agree that was at least it appeared at the time to be a significant moment. And what you're saying in terms of the, 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 the data and you know the, the measurements of, of uh, the amount of coverage that it got, the number of mentions it got, uh, shows that it certainly got a lot of coverage at that moment. But it was really a squall almost, almost you know. It, it, it certainly didn't, it didn't presage a change of weather. It felt like it was, but then it kind of disappeared again. I suppose that's what you're saying about the the 24-hour media cycle. But I'd long been told, and I imagine uh, many people who were trying to cover this and and, and watching it had been told by the Yes campaign, you know, don't worry, uh, we've you know what we've got planned. It's going to when the when the campaign gets going, you know, it's going to really change this dynamic. That that message had been coming from the Yes side really for the whole of the year, and I don't think it ever. Re- I mean the Perhaps the Farnham ad was the closest it got to it, but it, it, there was no other real moment, I don't think. I mean, the launch in Adelaide, yes, that was a feel-good thing. I wonder whether so. Yeah, there's been a fair bit of commentary around this, and I think it, it certainly resonates with me, but I'm interested in, in both your thoughts, whether all of these things were excellent moments uh, for the communication between the Yes campaign and people who are already Yes voters, were they transformative or did they reach in any meaningful way the people who weren't yes voters? So I think there was the Farnham ad that got the lots of attention. So did the walks um, around the nation. And both these events were planned on Sundays to pick up the media cycle. And that was a very good attempt to try and do some agenda setting because I think for most of this campaign, the no was leading the agenda. They were out on the front foot and um, the yes was being fairly reactive. So that was an opportunity for yes to try and seize the campaign messaging again. Did it turn around those that were uh, persuadable voters, as we like to call them? There was an opportunity there, but one of the difficulties, I think, was the lack of hybridity. So the Yes campaign was good at using free media, but we're in a very sophisticated campaigning age where audiences are fragmented and they're fragmented across social media spaces as well as mainstream media spaces. And the No campaign was very good at identifying the specific needs of each social media space. So it understood what the mechanisms are to get shareability on TikTok and it understood what the mechanisms were to get shareability on Facebook. It didn't do a cut and paste of its messaging. It did targeted and specific messaging on each of those platforms. I think that also very much identified what their weaknesses were and their weaknesses in this campaign were going to be younger voters. Polling had showed that 65% of younger voters were supporting the yes side. So they went to where the younger voters were and they're on TikTok. We know that 70% of TikToks, um, TikTokers uh, between 18 and 24, they use that platform very well in three specific ways. They use authentic voices with Indigenous voices, mainly led by Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. They used humour very well. They used young people to speak to young people. And then, of course, they wrapped it all up in personal narrative, which is the way to get that shareability using the video format. And, yes, took a while to recognise how effective, no, how potent no was being on that space. Yes, they had a present on presence on TikTok as well, but in many cases they were cutting and pasting speeches at the National Press Club and posting them up in, you know, five or six minutes 
I just have to turn to my kids and say, you know, what's the better TikTok here? And um, they will go for that humour and the personal narrative and the 30, 40 second take any time. Yeah, I I think, you know, you, you've actually given really vivid examples of the difference between, yes, is decentralised and, and not as professionalised campaign. I mean, some of the reporting around um, the Yes campaign over the course of the year seemed to be around a lack of, um, I suppose, sort of centralised organisation and, and a lot of sort of disputes. And dynamism. Well, yeah, I mean, um, you, you know, and I think I think it's not an accident that, uh, Warren Mundine folded in his um, organisation into the Advance Australia thing and the fact that they so very effectively used Jacinta Napajira Price and Warren Mundine to head their campaigns. I think one of the things that was most interesting about the thing that Yes liked to emphasise was um, the sort of ground game dimension. And mm. for a long time the figure being discussed was a sort of 30,000 um, volunteers on the ground, you know, to, to remind just for disclosure, like, yeah, that was I was one of them. And and that number has since increased to sort of 50,000 or, or, or it, some have even said 80,000. But what was really interesting to me about this 30,000 number, which was the number for many, many months, is that that is actually about the same number that you get in a normal election campaign. And so, you know, that's that that's not going to be enough. To, to engage in the sort of one-on-one conversations required to, to turn around a, a big ocean liner that had been going now in the in the wrong direction. Andrea, one of the things I really want to know is, like, you know, the, the debate around misinformation has been really kind of contested and potent. What does the uh, contour analysis kind of show around the, the prevalence or importance of, of what we might deem misinformation? Yeah, it's a really big question and I guess the first thing to acknowledge is that this referendum was done in the digital media space, not in analogue media, which is when we had the last referendum back in 99. Um, So it's got lots of facets to it. It needs that level of sophistication. But, of course, one of the problems with modern campaigns is that it, the digital media space is very fast moving and if you put missile disinformation out there, it can spread far and wide. And indeed, we saw that happening here. Um, the commissioner, head commissioner of the AEC, Tom Rogers, made remarks that he thinks he saw more disinformation going on than he did in the 2022 federal election. And I think he's a pretty good barometer because one of the things we were noticing were three types of disinformation that was occurring in this campaign. And just for listeners to give the difference, disinformation is false content that's shared with the specific purpose of harming or rewarding one side, whereas misinformation is just false information that's shared and might be shared haplessly because people honestly believe that it to be true. Disinformation here was designed to disrupt and we saw three types of disinformation. The first was derailing what the referendum was actually about and some really silly narratives around these. And I don't like to amplify it, but I think um, I can give an example of one of the more absurd, and that was the UN global um, Global government grab that that spread. Um, The second type we saw was attacks on the process of the referendum, which I found particularly concerning because there were many aspects of that that showed American contagion, even the same language around stolen election, rigged election, uh, using rigged and inverted commas. These were some of the memes and the messages that were being shared there. Even the most ridiculous uh, element of that was that there'd be voting machines that would be rigged. Anyone who's voted in Australia knows we use pencil and um pen a pencil and paper so the idea of a voting machine getting involved here is just a direct and very lazy adaption I would say from the American environment Um, and then the third kind was direct attacks on the AEC itself and that was the part that um, I saw a lot more of that than the 2022 campaign and Tom Rogers has spoken about that and that's one we really need to be concerned about because that undermines our trust in the very high-class neutral administration of the election, which underpins having fair and free elections, as Marie has written about many times. So I think there is a problem there that needs to be more broadly addressed. Having said all of that, 
Just because someone's exposed to mis- and disinformation doesn't mean it changes voter behaviour necessarily. It depends on the salience of that messaging and um, the frequency of it. And that's where more research needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, we, we, sorry, just to interrupt you there, we, we can theorise about that, particularly in the context of a referendum where, going back to your point before about uh, the status quo versus a change option, that you might not people might just simply not be persuaded to make the change if they are influenced by a cloud of doubts, not anyone in particular, just a sort of a a generalised sense of concern that there is dispute over the proposition, they've heard a number of things, they don't necessarily have to believe in the UN land grab or global government idea for it to add to the sort of ill ease that they feel about it. Yeah, I think that's right, Mark, and that's part of the effectiveness of mis- and disinformation. Mm. It just creates this fog of noise that um, has people, even the slightest amount of doubt, the job's kind of done for those that are yeah. trying to sow those seeds of disruption. But the other element to this is people were voting on an idea, not for a political party or a, a candidate, and the ideas are contestable. There are uh, not every thing is a fact that can be verified or measurable. And the next chapter we were seeing here was the weaponisation of the terminology of mis- and disinformation, which was being used in place of someone actually disagreeing with someone else. Instead of doing that in a civil way and saying, I, you know, agree to disagree or respecting that space, then the labels of mis- and disinformation would also be used to try and um, demonise someone's point of view. Yeah, and and this is like seriously really corrosive stuff, right, because it's actually dissolving the tools we use to civilly disagree or resolve disputes like it's it's liquefying the the sort of crux of what actually makes our democratic parliamentary system function and I I was really disturbed for example like around like like you mentioned, um, attacks on the AEC, you know, it's really disappointing that every political actor didn't come out and just sort of say, you got to stop saying these things. This is all bullshit. And I thought it was doubly concerning that when um, Senator Price was asked about the um, voting rates in remote communities, because of course the level of Indigenous support became one of the final kind of argument points in in the sort of dying days of the campaign, and that she never actually addressed the question, particularly as the early booth results were definitely casting her assertion about Indigenous voters and their preferences in a different light from what she had claimed, and she never engaged with that. She just began to attack the AEC, and and, and again that is that is really. Yeah, well, it's, it is because the, the, these are the preconditions. I mean, the way you described it, I absolutely agree with that. But these are the preconditions for contesting results. And we saw that with the way Trump uh, ended up contesting the results and you know, what happened on January 6 in 2021. And we've, and we've uh, seen it happen in other places. And we've largely been immune from that because we've had a, a very well set up, independently run national or federal Australian Electoral Commission that has run elections and we haven't had a culture of arguing with the mechanics of it. But you're right, uh, it needed political leaders, political actors to come out on all sides and and refute any such suggestion of there being anything wrong with the system. But in fact, we got not not only did we not get that, but Peter Dutton actually was one of the people who was exactly. fueling it. He actually uh, used the term rigged at one stage in relation to uh, the decision that the AEC had, which was that it would accept ticks and the word yes. Uh, and that had that was consistent with a long-standing tradition because all the, uh, all the AEC is interested in is knowing what the voter's intention was. Uh, and that was the best way of doing it. So if you put a cross in the box, that is ambiguous. And that was what the, the ruling was. Has this person voted yes or no? It's hard to tell. Um, if they write yes or if they write no, that's very clear and some people will, will, have, will have ticked it. And that, that decision was taken and then you had Dutton come out and say that, you know, what, what's going on here? This is, this is rigged and in the end it wasn't close. It, it, it sort of speaks to a, a broader phenomena which is happening here and, and, and is actually far more advanced in other parts of the, the world, which is politics is increasingly becoming less about 
opposing ideas about how to solve problems and increasingly becoming about um, how to sort of segment and confuse the electorate to produce a number of votes which you can then occupy office from. Maybe you'll solve some problems, maybe you won't. And, you know, we actually can see right now in real time where all of this ends up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's actually – it's. It's something that we all need to kind of be more mindful about in asking more of our elected representatives and and that it actually needs to return to being a, a taboo, right? Like attacking the AEC um, yes, that's, that's should be a taboo outside point. of like the big mess up in WA where they got the yeah. count wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a genuine mistake. It's not that institutions shouldn't be questioned, but I think it is actually kind of fascinating that, you know, we've got a degree of polarization in our polity where two things are happening. It's that the left and the right, and I'm going to be really lazy in my usage of those, have sort of landed in a certain spot where, you know, there are certain institutions that that shouldn't be attacked, that are, you know, beyond, beyond reproach, even though, you know, they're, they're human organizations and they're fallible. And then there are certain ones that should be lionized. And, and that there is also simultaneously a kind of um, recognition is the wrong word, but a sort of sense that 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 you know there are there are groups within society who don't want me, who think I'm the enemy, and who want to destroy me, and and that is stopping the actual discourse in the centre, where every single dispute we have is actually resolved and settled because extreme solutions are inherently unstable that they don't last this is a broadly conservative centrist country and successful for that reason because it it is basically doubling down on consensus and incremental change or long-awaited radical change which is only radical because it's taken so long to get there yeah yeah that's right and extreme solutions are not just unstable they're usually bad they're usually not solutions. They just look like solutions, which is essentially the essence of populism. Well, an experiment you know, that will probably go wrong. Putting forward, you know, glib solutions to complex problems, uh, it, it may seem attractive to a parcel of votes, and you might be able to put together a parcel of votes in support of your populist program, which is really what you're saying, I guess. Um, but um, that won't last, exactly. and it won't end up having much of a voting record either, or a, or a reform record. Um, one of the things I wanted to also go to, Andrea, I'm interested in this because actually as it happens, all three of us on the panel here have, have worked in media in, in some capacities, uh, you and I, uh, particularly Andrea, as as journalists. Um, whether you have any thoughts, uh, I suppose this is less about data, but whether you have any thoughts about the performance of media through, and I'm talking about mainstream media here, through the campaign, uh, particularly the way media looked at this Essentially, inherently binary structure that are, that is imposed on us by a, by a referendum. Um, the way media decided, well, particularly broadcast media, we're going to do this by something approximating a fifty fifty split. Uh, whether that was one correct to do, and whether it actually served the quality of debate and the truth, or whatever, as close as we could get to the truth through the process. Yeah, media has um, copped a fair bit of criticism with this campaign, uh, how they covered it, as they did with the 2022 election. Um, On the question of whether there should be given equal coverage to both sides of what is a binary question, yes or no, uh, I don't have a problem with that because I think it's about opinion formation and people have a right to vote yes and people have a right to vote no and they need information on both sides of that equation. I think what's more concerning is our definitions of mainstream media and some media becoming actors in the campaign, Um, particularly some, and, you know, I'll call it out on um, Sky News. I saw uh, through the data a trend that was occurring here and I saw it also back when we were researching the death tax in um, 2019. The death tax that never existed. That's right, Mm. Um, a a form of fake news. Mm. And what we saw with Sky News was that uh, some fairly radical position might be uttered, but getting back to Maria's point before, our mainstream politicians will pick up that clip cut it out and then send it off on their socials where they have huge followings. But um, 
News Corp would also spur it along on their social media or even upload it onto YouTube. And then it would get the advertising dollar from getting massive numbers of hits on YouTube, which returns back to its consolidated earnings. And this is becoming a business model for some media to be able to uh, say something that's quite inflammatory and sensational. And Mark, as you know, the definition of news is something that's new. Fake news is always so much more sensational than that because you're not bound by the boundaries of reality or truth-telling. And so if you really want to get people's attention, then you just say something enormously sensational. Um, And that gets the shares and the clicks and the virality. And we certainly saw that on social media that much of the content on Sky News, which was inflammatory, was getting... Um, a big following in the online space and then in the YouTube space was also being monetized. And I think there's a question there about the political economy of the media in that instance. Um, as to the rest of the coverage, I think these things, sometimes I think some of the criticism's unfair that the media does have a responsibility to cover both sides and they are they have media logics, news logics. They follow the news cycle or, you know, perform to a 24-hour news cycle and then take whatever the most um, interesting or newsworthy story is of the day and then move on to the next thing. And that may not necessarily service the public good of informing debate in the public sphere and you end up with people talking past each other rather than engaging with the contest of ideas. Well, let me take that up though because I'm going to mildly contest this idea that the 50-50 split um, is is broadly speaking a viable way of going in, and, and using the voice referendum as an example. A good deal of the no campaign, uh, it, certainly the salience of the no campaign, was misinformation or disinformation. Uh, there were all kinds of things circulating uh, on social media. There were all kinds of misunderstandings that were uh, not being corrected, that were being, uh, that were coursing about in the debate. One of the most powerful ones, and and Maria's already made a a reference to this, was this idea, supported by Mundine and Nampajimpa Price and others, that the voice mechanism that was being proposed, that recognition of the model that was being proposed, did not have the support of 80% 80% or anything like that of Aboriginal people, that in fact it was there were, there were many people who didn't support it, many, many Aboriginal people who didn't support it. Now, this was a corrosive idea to the legitimacy of the proposal being put forward. It fed an argument that was also being run by the No campaign that, yes, was in fact a vanity project by a bunch of privileged uh, urban elites, uh, uh, Aboriginal people who were wealthy and educated, who had lost touch with uh, Aboriginal people in in, in communities in regional Australia and remote Australia. Um, And therefore, there was a whole sort of legitimacy question. Well, what the votes actually show was that that's not the case. And certainly in uh, seats like Lingiari, where there were uh, polling booths, where there was a predominant uh, Indigenous population, the support was very significant, around 75% uh, support at the end of a campaign that had been highly corrosive. And I think, um, so that gives the lie to that. And yet through the campaign, if we look at the way broadcasters behaved, they did not contest these sorts of things. And what's more, pretty well every every package that I listened to on uh, on um, creditable programs, on creditable uh, shows on the ABC and elsewhere, uh, and SBS, uh, they featured often interviews with Aboriginal people who were voting no and why they were voting no. So we're talking about a slice of a small slice of the population, 3%, as we mentioned before, and then a very small slice of that population, and yet the coverage, the, uh, the, the representation of that in media was, I think, well overblown, and it resulted in a loss of confidence in the support and in the integrity of the proposition being put forward. And I think, yeah, if you're going to have 50%, why not split it 50% on fact, 50% on things that are known? I know that is difficult to do and I know that that is, uh, that is uh, not always, uh, there's not going to be always agreement on what constitutes fact, but that is journalism. Journalism isn't about being a carrier service. It isn't about turning the ABC or SBS or, or various radio shows or whatever into 
you know, Facebook and these other carrier services where uh, where it's the content is decided by the contributors. The, the, the mainstream media are meant to be more than that, and I think there was a disservice done to the population of this country by the sheer quality of the debate and the failure of media to contest a lot of things that were put forward that turned out to be sheer bollocks. I agree with that, but I think we're talking about something different here. Um, that's about selectivity rather than proportionality, and media always has a responsibility Despite the fact that we have newspapers called the mirror, the media is not a mirror to society. News is always constructed and it's selected and it's produced. And there's a responsibility there for newsmakers to select the information that they're presenting to the public. We can never have everything that happens during a day on the front page of a newspaper, nor can we have it uh, in a news bulletin. Of course, there's judgment that goes into that. And I think what you're talking about is a judgment problem rather than giving equal weight to the yes campaign and the no campaign, I think there were valid uh, criticisms for the yes campaign and valid criticisms for the no campaign. There's no reason why they can't get 50-50% airing. I agree with but that. When it, yeah. When it comes to the quality of what that information is, I completely agree with you that there's a quality over a quantity question here. And I also think it brings in this question of active adjudication, which is not something we see very much in Australian political reporting. And it's something I've written about in the past, looking at American politic, political reporting in terms of fact-checking. And that is that what we find is Australian journalists tend to still do the he said, she said model of reporting, you know, for want of better terminology. And that is the idea of this person says X, this person from the other side says Y, so we'll put both of them in the story and leave it up to the public to make up their mind about where that sits. That might have worked in the 20th century when we had the um, idea that all reporting was objective. We know that's not the case. Increasingly, the media environments become polarised. And what happens now in the US particularly is where you've got active adjudication going on within the story that when there is something that is known to be a falsehood or to be mischievous, the journalist calls it out there and then or doesn't report on it and makes that selectivity judgment. And I think that's what you're talking about, Mark, and I agree with that. What A question that I have lingering for myself, though, that I haven't worked through yet is if we go down more of the active adjudication model of journalism, which, um, as I said, is happening in the States with political reporting, does that lead to a greater polarised media and you start getting the public not cross-pollinating their news diet where they just stick to one side of the media that they're comfortable with and not the other? Um, but I, I do agree with you there's an onus and responsibility on journalists not to present bullshit. Mm. And I think Julia Gillard called it out uh, as bluntly as that, did she not? <laughs> don't, write, um, don't write bullshit, I think was it. Don't write crap. I don't write crap, was. that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah she was more uh, polite. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, you've, you've both sort of highlighted the, the real difficulty that liberal democracies are actually facing against a, a technology and against AI that is uh, really good at playing to... Uh, I guess, the sort of primal limitations of our meat brains, right? And, you know, re realistically, uh, our political systems are going to have to learn to respond. And it's not like it's the first time we've dealt with this this issue. I mean, the printing press was explosive as well. But, you know, it wasn't backed by an algorithm and it, and it wasn't heavily researched about how to get us to stay on a website and, um, you know, get dopamine going in our brains and, and, and all of that. Um, but it kind of did, didn't it? Because it had scalability. True, just what true. In the digital age. And we also had the penny press and the yellow press, which was full of, bullshit. of fake news. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I do think I do think our political systems can, can solve it. I just think it's going to be just like it was in the case of the printing press and, and, and so on and so forth and the penny press and so on. Like, it's going to be ugly. Um, and 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 the solutions may not always work, or they may not be terribly um, pretty. But I, you know, I, I think I think you're right. Like we've reached the end of the 20th century model where we rely on norms and ideas of objectivity. Like that, that's not going to cut it. You know, like do we go down the pathway of truth and advertising? You know, do we go down the path of regulation? Like 
None of those are easy solutions. They're not straightforward. No, they're, they're just like they're not straightforward for journalists. They're not straightforward exactly. for regulators and, and, and all of these things can be contested. I do think there are differences, though, in terms of the, the economics of and the scalability. You, know, you mentioned that word scalability, Andrea. The scalability of, of, um, of media now and of the promulgation of ideas, good and bad, uh, is exponentially greater and more more immediate and more universal. Oh, absolutely, because the barriers to entry are different now. Yeah. We don't need to have a printing press and be a media baron yeah. in order to have that scalability, which we had to have uh, back in the 17th century, whereas now all you need is an internet connection, not even a keyboard. You can have a voice-activated um, app in order to be able to disseminate information where we all become producers, much like we're doing right now with this podcast, we all have the means to be able to produce, consume and comment on media. And that's where, um, you know, it's like the printing press on multiple steroids. That's right. And the thing that I think often missed when people sort of draw those historical comparisons is just the the way in which it can happen instantaneously and the way in which it's able to construct multiple realities for people and the sheer size of, if you think about it in the economic terms, the sheer size of the audiences you can deal with for the cost of participation, uh, they fundamentally change the proposition, right? So you can it's now viable for media companies to speak only to segments of the market, only to, to you know, and we see this, this, we, we now have, in a sense, greater media diversity than we've ever had. Um, you know, we used to always hear about what we need is more diversity. Well, we've got a lot of diversity now, but it's very partisan diversity. It's very, it's not like you've got a lot of newspapers of record or new broadcasters coming in, which are sitting there in the middle and defending traditional journalistic values and so forth. It's it's a much more contested space. And these algorithms come along and they help us understand the world in a particular way, in ways that are not at all transparent. Yes, these things have gone on before, but they're going on at scale and speed now and 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 with a um, an overall kind of size, I suppose, that um, makes it a – I think I'm not at all confident that, that, that we can work this out in our politics. I'm not at all confident about that um, in terms of uh, our understanding of the, the – uh, the idea of elections, of a functioning state, of an agreed arena of of problem solving, of, of problem mediation. I'm not at all confident these things can, can hold. Well, we didn't even talk about deep fakes to just add to the depressing litany just listed. Mm. Um, yeah. Mark, that's a real downer. I was trying <laughs> to be happy. I was trying not to be morbid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Look, um, uh, I'm sorry to have, uh, you know, dampen the mood so substantially. Uh, I think we're probably right out of time. We've been talking for a long time. Perhaps I've been talking too much, for which I apologise. Um, you've been listening to Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University, a specialist in political communication, to Maria Tiflaga, Dr. Maria Tiflaga from the uh, School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU and from me, Mark Kenny. That is Democracy Sausage for this week. Um, you can send your objections to uh, democracy sausage at anu.edu.au, and who knows, I might even respond. Or, or nice things. We like nice things yeah, too. Yeah. Keep it nice. <laughs> Thank you, Andrea. A pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Bye.